Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Now, the question is, when do all of these events take place in regard to that seven-year period, which is still future? And that seven-year period kicks off by a peace treaty that is orchestrated by the Antichrist, this world political leader, between Israel and her enemies. That's what starts the seven-year tribulation period. The rapture of the church precedes that period. The rapture of the church doesn't start that period. It's pre-tribulational. It precedes it. That seven-year period, Daniel 9.27, starts with this peace treaty orchestrated by the Antichrist between Israel and their enemies. So, you've got that seven-year period. I am convinced that the Gog-Magog battle is not just one battle, it's a campaign. And it's a campaign that begins right before the middle of the tribulation period, and goes all the way to the end of the tribulation period. So it's a campaign. Oftentimes I will refer to it as the campaign of Armageddon. Armageddon itself not being one battle, uh, but a campaign. When you think of World War II, you know, there's a lot, you know, what, what is, you know, some of the, you know, the one famous well-known battle that I can think of in World War II, the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, but there's a lot of battles that took place in the campaign of World War II, right? Um, Well, you have the campaign of Armageddon. You have a lot of battles. I am totally convinced that the Gog-Magog invasion of Israel, led by Russia, Turkey, Iran, a whole host of countries, takes place right before the middle of the tribulation period. Now, that being said, that means Iran today is not going to be destroyed. Um, it's got to be around by, for the middle of the tribulation period to align with Russia. So <clears throat> at best what we're going to have now is, you know, I don't want to call them skirmishes. There, you know, there could be small wars that break out. They're not going to be large wars. They're not going to be nuclear wars. You know, right now Iran doesn't have <coughs> nuclear weapons. They're, they're very close to that point. So, so what I see happening, we, we are, we're living in a fascinating time of, of history. There's no question about that. 
uh, for no other reason than I think we're living in the time of the return of Jesus. Um, consider North Korea. We don't know what's going to happen in North Korea. But Donald Trump has started something. President Trump has started something that no other president ever really dreamed of since the beginning of the Korean War in the early 50s. So we're looking at almost 70 years that this has been going on. And there is the, there is the distinct possibility of the uh, cessation of the Korean conflict, that they will sign a peace treatment, uh, treaty, that there will be a denuclearization uh, in North Korea, and things will be completely turned around. Now, there's also the other possibility that none of this will happen. But at least there's that distinct possibility. If it would become a reality in North Korea, I see that there are two major um, protagonists in the world against the West. North Korea, there are others. North Korea and Iran. And the big problem with both of them, even though Pakistan does have nuclear weapons, they've been pretty much under control. Uh, but if North Korea is solved and taken off the scene from that, uh, then you're going to see all of the attention put on Iran and trying to get them to step back, however that would happen. If that could happen, you know, the first time in, in, in modern Israel's history, uh, a lot of the Sunni Arab nations are aligned, are aligning with Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia and others. That's, uh, 10 years ago, you never would have thought that happening. So perhaps what is happening is not so much with Iran here, but they're bringing more and more attention to themselves. And if North Korea is taken care of, I think the next focus will be on Iran, and if Trump can uh, bring them to a point of real disarmament, not the fake disarmament, not, not the, 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 the charade that the previous administration foistered on the American public, uh, which is just a, a charade, but if there's a real disarmament and real accountability and maybe a change of regime, who knows what happens because these they're, they're religious based. Um, you know, we are so very close to world peace. Uh, and after that peace treaty is signed, they'll, when they say peace and safety, 1 Thessalonians 5, then comes sudden destruction. So I, I, I think maybe we're moving in that direction. Uh, Iran is angering everybody. Everybody's come out against Iran for attacking Israel, even some of the Arab Sunni nations. That, that's, <laughs> I can't, I, it's, it's, you know, we live in a upside down world. I, I never would have imagined this would happen. And they are just putting a bullseye on their back. Now, let me just put out a caveat here. I don't believe Trump is the Antichrist, okay? Um, but he seems to be fostering steps uh, towards perhaps, I mean, everything, everything can go backwards, obviously, to world peace. Uh, and we know there's a peace treaty coming. We know there's a seven-year tribulation period coming. 
We know ultimately Russia and Turkey and the nations aligned with them, the Ezekiel 38 and 39, will come into Israel. So we know all that's going to happen. But uh, prior to the middle of the tribulation of the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle or campaign, there's got to be a semblance of peace in the world. And I, I can just, and again, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a son of a prophet, but I can see it building towards this. With what's perhaps happening in North Korea, then perhaps in Iran. Um, we'll see. Um, so in and of itself, I don't think this is important. Um, certainly it's important to the families that are being bombed. I'm not minimizing that. But from a from a prophetic aspect. Again, it's, it's the setting of the stage. I think I've shared oftentimes, um, I don't believe there's a lot of prophecy being fulfilled today. Israel's rebirth as a nation, 1948, is unquestionably the sign of the end times and the fulfillment of prophecy. Ezekiel 37, 8, Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 2, and others. <clears throat> um, but what is happening now is, is the setting of the stage. And, you know, I, I've always um, compared it to a, 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 a play that's opening on Broadway or wherever it's opening. You know, prior to opening night, there is a huge amount of work that needs to be done. The uh, producer He's the writer of the script. The script has to be written. The producer will, will get a director, and the director then will um, interview um, actors and actresses uh, for the play. There are sets that have to be made. If that is a three-scene or four-scene play, there's got to be at least, what, three or four different sets that are prepared and that type of thing. All of that is done months and months ahead of time in preparation for opening night when the curtain goes up. Well, the seven-year tribulation period is a drama. It's a seven-year play, if you will. And I think what God is doing now is the script has been written. The script was written, finished um, almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible. But what God is doing now, I think, with Israel on the scene as a nation among the nations of the world, he is, he is getting all the actors and the actresses, as it were, in place. And he's building the sets. He's moving nations around and events around, getting ready for the fulfillment of uh, tribulational events, which start with the signing of that peace treaty and then in that seven-year period. And I, I take most end-time prophecy, if not all of that uh, to take place within that seven-year tribulation period. Now, I understand there are people that would differ on that view. They, you know, but, you know, I, we talked about that when we looked at Ezekiel 37 and 38. So when, when I see something happening like what happened this week, I, I try to understand it through the grid that I just shared. Uh, Iran's not going anyplace, not for a while anyway. Uh, so they're not going to be destroyed. Uh, so Israel, you know, will they attack them again? I don't know. If they do, will Israel retaliate? That's a given. Would they bomb Iran to smithereens? No. Not at this point. Because 
I don't believe that's until the middle of the tribulation period. So, but it's exciting. We're living in fascinating times. Um, so, you know, lift up your heads. You know, listen for the trumpet. You listen for the trumpet. It's a, you know, it's it's. It, Bob, you won't blow the trumpet. But anyway, um, you know the the shofar. That's you know the trump of God. The Lord's coming, and I think He's coming soon. Okay. Uh, any any questions or thoughts before we move on to this, uh, Hebrews chapter four? So. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13 tonight, and uh, the last couple of times we've been in Hebrews, going back all the way back to chapter 3, and uh, verses 7 and 8 to the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, 1 through 6, it's all part of this warning passage. Now, again, to remind us, Hebrews is addressed to the Hebrews, to Jewish people. But there are two groups in view, and we saw it very, very clearly last week. Uh, us and them. Us are Jewish people who literally possess the Lord. They've truly repented, they've accepted the Lord, they've believed the teaching of the Word of God, and they are truly saved. They're possessing the Lord. They're truly saved. The them are those who did not mix it with faith. They're just professors. They will give lip service to Jesus being the Messiah, dying for their sins and all of that, but they're not truly saved. And so, all the way back in chapter 3, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, harden not your hearts. Don't become hardened to the truth of the gospel. Don't become hardened as your fathers were in the day of the wilderness. And as we come down... Um, into the section today, in verse 7, it's actually repeated again. Again, he limits a certain day, saying, And David, today, after so long a time, as I said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And I think we see here that the compassion, the concern, that the writer of Hebrews has for these uh, Jewish people who profess the Lord but aren't really saved. They've just got a head knowledge of it. And he's got this burning desire, this heartfelt compassion that they would not harden their hearts. See, they were in danger of leaving the truth and going back to Judaism. They were never saved, and more correctly, Mosaism and the temple. So in, in verses 7 through 11, the writer exhorts those who are professors, <coughs> but, not the, but not possessors, another unsaved people to put their trust wholly in the Lord. In the last couple of verses we're going to look at today, the Word of God uh, is mentioned, is quick and powerful. God's Word will do its work in the lives of people. It will penetrate to the depths of man's being and just revealing our, our, our basic needs. Now, we can refuse, we can deny, we can turn from it, but God's Word, and we'll look at it as quick and powerful. But one of, the, one of the concerns here in, the, in, the, in this section is that don't continue down a path of rejection, repeated rejection. Because if you do, one day God might say, okay, have it your way. 
and he'll, and, and he'll remove the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, and they cannot be saved. See, John 16, 8, the pre-salvation work of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God has come into the world, when he has come into the world, he will convict the world, unsaved people, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. Of sin, it says because we believe not on the Lord, but our need for the Lord. Of righteousness, righteousness is Jesus. Not a, We don't have any righteousness, it's his righteousness. And judgment to come. You're a sinner, you need the righteousness of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you. And if you don't, judgment faces you in the future. So the warning is, you know, if you continue on in your path and, and turn away and go, there could reach that point that God will say, okay, um, it's, it's not long enough. I keep on pulling it off. So let me just put it down right here and do it this way. Um, God will say, okay, enough is enough. Have it your way, and he'll remove his spirit. Now, we'll look at that. So verse 7. It says this, again, he limits a certain day, saying to David, today after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Now, the word limits is an is a interesting word. Uh, limit it, limit, that's the King James. You could just say limits. You don't have to put the F there. Uh, I think King James had a lisp, but anyway. But anyway, um, <laughs> limit is the Greek word horizo. Now, or her, if you want to pronounce it, horizo. If I say horizo, what, what is the English word that you might derive from this Greek word horizo? Horizon. And so when you think of, uh, of the horizon, you're, you're looking out in the distance and to the very horizon at the end of where you're looking, right? The horizon. And then that's where everything, in a sense, ends, okay? That's the Greek word here, or horizo. Uh, and it literally means to mark out or bound horizon um, to a point to decree, to specify, to declare, to determine. That's the word you used here. Again, he limits a certain day. Now, remember, this is in the context of warning. So th there's, there's a specific day. There's a horizon. There's a determination. There's, a, there's an appointment that if you harden your heart, perhaps awaits you. Now, limiteth is the same word as predestined with one difference. The pre. Look at the um, Greek word there. Uh, we looked at horizo. Then you have pro horizo. Pro would be pre. So limit and destined is the exact same Greek word. The difference is pro, pre, destined. And so it's the Greek definition, to limit in advance, i.e., predetermine, determine before, ordain, or predestinate, that word there. Okay? Same word except for the pre. Now, 
What should we understand about God limiting and predestinating? Before we look at the last page in this study, um, which is a separate page, both of these words have an end, a, a, a terminus, a terminal point, an end point, a final point in their um, meaning. The difference is horizo, destined or limit, we don't know when that final point is. Pro horizo, pre-destined, is we know when that terminal point is. Understand the difference? Both of them have a, have a, have a terminal point. They both have an end point when, when this will be accomplished. The difference being with Haridza, we don't know when that day is. Now, who, who does know when that, guy, that day is? God. Yeah, God certainly does. But when we look at predestined, there's, there's an end point, there's that terminal point, but it's already been predetermined, and so we can know when that point is, as opposed to that word without it. Okay? You're following me so far. So... Before we look, consider limit, go to the last page because I want to consider the word predestined and adoption. They go very close together. It's not used often in the New Testament. And we talk about the New Testament because this is Greek, New Testament in Greek. So on, on what would be page three if, you, if, if it was numbered. Um, predestination, pro or that same word we just looked at, uh, it's, it's in the bold in these verses that I have put here when it's talking ab about us, but it's only used six times in the New Testament. Now, horizo is used other times, like it's used in Hebrews chapter 4 that we're looking at, but pro-horizo, predestined, is only used six times in the New Testament, so not a lot. Two of them have nothing to do with us at all. In, in Acts 4.28, to do whatsoever your hand and your purpose determined, that's the word pro orizo, predestined, determined before to be done. Now, if you look at Acts 4.28 in context, you can do it later. What it's talking about is God's plan for Jesus to die the sins of the world. In other words, God has predetermined that Jesus would come into the world and die for the sins of the world, be buried, and rose again. It has to do with God's plan for Jesus. That's predestined. So he was slain before the foundation of the world because God knew he had predetermined that that would happen. Nothing could stop it. Satan tried to stop it. Satan used people to try to stop it. He used angels to try to stop it. Nothing can stop what God has predetermined. And the first used here has to do with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the wisdom, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Ordained is, again, the, the, the word prohorizo, or predestined. Ordained, determined ahead of time. A lot of words could be used. Now, 
This verse has to do with God's plan of the gospel, the hidden wisdom, being revealed at a certain point in time and has nothing to do with the predestination of believers. In other words, God, in eternity past, had determined that there would be the good news, the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that hidden wisdom that would be revealed that he paid the sin penalty for all of us. That was predetermined. So these first two uses have nothing to do with us, but they're predetermined. In other words, God set out on the horizon at a specific time when Jesus would come and die for our sins and the gospel would be accomplished. Galatians 4, we'll look at it, not the beginning of it, in the fullness of time. Well, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So those are the first two. So it has nothing to do with us, has to do with Jesus, has to do with the gospel. The last four times of predestined has to do with believers. The other four verses are the only times predestination as well. To, uh, predestination and adoption together. I should read what I have here. Uh, the other, well, let me, I, let me, I, the other four verses are the only times predestination is used in regard to believers. We'll start with the two in Ephesians. See, there's two in Ephesians chapter 1 and there's two in Romans chapter 8. And as we look at it, when, when you study predestination, pro read so, when it, in the context of this, it's, it's very, very, closely tied in with adoption. And you really can't separate a predestination and adoption, or adoption and predestination, if you want to put it in the correct order, I guess. So it's always important to study those together. They're very closely united. Different, different doctrines, different truths, but, but very close, closely united uh, together. Now, uh, Birth and adoption are two different concepts in both the physical and the spiritual realm. Birth gives life. Adoption affects an already existing life. Cheryl and I adopted our daughter. She was birthed into this world, and we adopted her into our family. She was placed into our family, but we didn't give her life. The birth mother gave her life. In the spiritual and the physical realm, birth gives life. Adoption never gives life life. It does affect an already existing life. When Deborah was put, placed into our family, it affected her life, hopefully for the better, but it certainly affected her life. So it's a whole completely different content, uh, con uh, context. Um, birth gives life, whereas adoption affects an already existing life. Adoption in the Greek literally means son placed. Not son made, son placed. And you can really, in a sense, carry that over to adoption in, in our world today. 
it's, a, it's a son placed, or a daughter if it's a girl, but it's a son placed. That life has already come into the world, but then you place that life in, in, in another family, as it were. The only way you get into God's family is by birth. It's the only way. God has no adopted children. None. You only get into God's family by birth, not by adoption. Adoption is something completely different. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. The first use where we're looking at it in Ephesians on predestination. God said, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, I, I didn't put it down here. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. We need to identify who the us is. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints, which are, are at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So who is Paul writing this letter to? The believers, the saints, the faithful, the church. Verse 2, grace be to you. Who is the you? The saints, the believers, the faithful. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us. Who is the us? Believers, church. He has blessed us, believers, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We're in Christ once we're a believer in the church. First three, it's very clear. He's addressing believers. He's addressing the church. He's addressing those who are saved. Then in verse 4, according as he had chosen us in him. Who is the us? Believers. So who is chosen? Believers. Church. He has chosen us in him because once we're saved, we are in him, in Christ. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So before the foundation of the world, God chose all believers who would be in Christ or the church for what? Look at the end of verse 4. That we, who is the we? Believers. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So what has, who has God chosen? The believers in Christ. And he's chosen us for what? To be different, holy, with a spiritual purpose. In, without blame, in love. So God has chosen believers before the foundation of the world, all who will be in Christ or believers, us, 
to live holy lives, blameless lives, in love before the world. That's what we're chosen for. There's nothing to do about salvation. Then look at verse 5, which is the verse that we're looking at. Having predestinated us. Who's the us? Believers. He's predestinated believers, having predestinated us, unto the adoption. Now, stop there for a second. The us are already children of God, right? Believers are children of God. So he has predestinated children of God, if I can paraphrase it like that. He's having predestinated children of God onto the adoption of children. Not to be children, but the adoption of children. Because you are a child of God, you have been predestinated to the adoption. So you're already a child. The adoption has nothing to do with becoming a child. You only get into God's family one way, which is spiritual birth. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It was his pleasure. It was his good pleasure of his will that all who are in Christ, all who are children of God, all who are saints, all who are saved, one day will have the adoption because they are children, the predestination of children. So I put the note here. Notice from the first four verses of chapter 1 that believers are being addressed, people that are already saved. Verse 5 says we are predestinated to adoption as sons. We're already children. We're already sons, and God has predestinated us. We are predestinated not to be sons, but as sons. We already are sons, and as sons we are predestined. We are predestined to adoption. Now, we're going to look at adoption shortly. Now, Galatians 4, 4, and 5 uh, talks about the adoption again. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem that them that were under the law. In this context, speaking of Jewish people, because they were under the law. And if you've been redeemed from being under the law, what are you then at that point? believer, a child of God, saved, to redeem that them that are under the law, that we, who is the we? Believers, those that have been redeemed, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Not to be sons. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are a child of God, and you've been redeemed. You will receive the adoption one day. So this speaks of the same truth, that because we are sons, we will receive the adoption, the adoption of sons. Not to be, of, because you already are sons, you will get the adoption, receive it one day. Now, what is the adoption? See, and, and, and what happens in our Christian world, we, we oftentimes, too many times, read a secular Western concept into a phrase. Adoption is probably not the best word to use 
but that's the word that the translators chose. But when we think of adoption, we think of somebody being uh, placed into a family, being uh, adopted into a family, and you become uh, a child of those parents, right? That's not how biblical, biblically the word adoption is used. It literally means son placed. But if you want to understand what adoption is, the Bible tells us. So we're not hanging by our fingernails, curious and whatever. Look at Romans 8.23. And I've got it right here for you. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now stop there. Who has the first fruits of the Spirit? Believers. And this portion of Romans, by the way, is in the glorification section. I know we've talked about that before. Some of you may or may not know what I'm talking about, but in, in, the, in the layout of Romans, in the first eight chapters after the introduction, you have uh, initially uh, man is condemned before a holy God. And then you have a section that deals with man is justified by grace alone through faith. Then you have the section that deals with sanctification. He which had begun a good work in you will perform it. And he is sanctifying you, setting you apart. And then the final part of chapter 8 from verse 17 to the end of the chapter deals with glorification. You were condemned, you've been justified, you are being sanctified, but one day you will be glorified. You will be in heaven one day. And so this context of adoption here and predestination is all in the glorification section. And so what he says is, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's believers, we don't have everything that God has promised us as believers. Why? What does the next verse say? Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Bob was telling me earlier how he's getting old. He was out in the garden today and did something, and he says, I'm getting old. And I had to correct Bob. Bob, you're not getting old. You're there. <laughs> hey, I'm there, too. How do we know Bob is there? He groans. <laughs> He's groaning within himself. Well, that's part and partial of our life, right? Of our fallen nature, of our, of our flesh. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. Now, now think about this. Who are the ones who have the first truths of the Spirit? Believers, children of God already, born again, children of God. And children of God are eagerly waiting for the adoption. That means they're not adopted yet. You're a child of God, but you're not adopted yet. See it? It's very clear. What is the adoption? To it, the redemption of our body. That's right. See, God has predestinated his children onto the adoption of sons. What he is saying is, I have predestined that one day I will place you in heaven with a new body. Right now you groan. Right now you feel every ache and pain. Right now you wish that that day was here. But right now all you have is the first fruits of the Spirit. You've got something much greater to come.
And, and, and if you understand adoption, you should be eagerly waiting for the adoption. Bob's eagerly waiting for the adoption. Amen, brother? I'm eagerly waiting for the adoption. And the older you get, the more you're waiting for the adoption. Eagerly waiting for the adoption. Because the body breaks down. Yes. Because they bring a philosophy into it instead of the Word of God. That's the, the yeah, yeah. I mean, this is so clear. Now, let's, so let's go on. So the, 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 the adoption is a new body. The redemption of our bodies. When do we get new bodies? But not, not when we're dead. Not when we're dead. At the resurrection. When we're dead, we go, our body goes into the, um, the ground. But where do we go? Absent from the body is to be... Present with the Lord. The resurrection. First the dead in Christ shall rise, then we which are alive remain shall be caught. It's at, the re it's at when Jesus returns, the rapture, we get our resurrected body. That's but we're waiting for that. I can't, I'm, you know, eagerly. And, and that's one of the, this is one of the great truths of Scripture. We're waiting eagerly. We should be eagerly awaiting for it. So, adoption is the redemption of our bodies. I'm reading now. In other words, we all believers, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, are predestined to have a glorified body one day. This is eternal security. That's what it's all about. It takes place when we are resurrected. Now, going back to Ephesians 1.11, and you're going to see how I tie this in with limit shortly. <coughs> um, Verse 11 of Ephesians 1, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him also we have obtained an, in, 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 an inheritance. Who is the we? Believers. We have an inheritance. Being predestinated to get that inheritance. When do we get that inheritance? In the future, God has beforehand set out on the horizon the point of time that not only are we predestined to the adoption, but we will get our inheritance, inheritance at that time. When is that time? When we meet Christ. The rapture. The context of predestined in this verse, see verse 10 also, we're not going to look there now, is that believers end result is already established along with an inheritance. The text here is speaking of what God had planned, predestined for those that are believers in the future. Beforehand, before the foundation of the world, God predetermined or determined that all who are in Christ will one day get a new body and have an inheritance in heaven. That's what it's saying. Yes. Predestination. Um, adoption. I don't know. I didn't look that up. <laughs> I don't have, uh, you know, so I can't answer that right now. But literally the word means son placed. Son placed is what it means. Now, look at Romans 8, 29 and then 30, the other two uses of predestined. And here it again is in the context of the glorification of a believer. And it follows 
relatively soon after the adoption, because we found the adoption mentioned in 8.23, right, of Romans? The adoption getting a new body. So then he says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what does predestined here have to be, have to do with? We, he's talking to believers in the context, are predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. When will we be like Jesus? We're going to have a perfect body. We're not going to have a sin nature. We're going to think like him. We're not going to be God. We're not omniscient or anything like that. So pre, we, believers are predestined to be like Jesus. That's the adoption. When we get a new body, we get, we're heirs with Jesus and we are like him. So we are predestinated or predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now this verse is a close parallel to Ephesians 1.5 and Romans 8.23. Notice those, notice, those whom he foreknew, obviously speaking of believers, God is predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means we will have a body like his and be like him. This doesn't mean we become God. We, we, man can never become God. Our body will be perfect like his. Our thoughts will be perfect like his, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in Romans 8.30, he says this, Moreover, whom he predestined. Who did he predestine? Believers, children of God, to be like Jesus one day in heaven. Moreover, those whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. All of those go together. All believers were called by God, justified by God, and ultimately glorified by God. That's all. God, last paragraph, God has predestined believers, thus he has called them, justified them, and will glorify them. This verse does not teach that we are predestined to be saved. Believers are predestined to be glorified one day. That's the context also of this passage. Believers are predestined to be glorified one day, and God has called, justified, glorified them. And it would be wrong, by the way, to equate call with predestination. There are plenty of verses that say God has called all men, yet not all respond. There are passages where men resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They were called but didn't respond positively. So predestination, something rising is, when it applies to people, has to do with believers. And believers being one day glorified. It has nothing to do with unbelievers being predestined to be saved. Unfortunately, that's what many believe. A study of the above verses would argue against this belief, predestined or predestined or predestinate should always be used in the way the Bible uses it, speaking of believers in their ultimate destiny, which is heaven, and their glorification. So go back to verse 7 of Hebrews 4 again. Again, he limits a certain day. God has determined a certain day. God has ordained a certain day. Now, the difference with this word and pro-horizo, this is just horizo, is there's a day out there, we have no idea when it will come. 
proharizo, God has predetermined that day, and we know exactly when it will come. When, when, when proharizo is used with Jesus and the gospel, when did that take place? As Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of times, 2,000 years ago. When will the other or uses of predestined proharizo come to fruition? God has told us at the rapture. When will he get glorified bodies? But limit, horizo, there is a set time, there is a point, there is on the horizon a time where God will say, that's it. We cannot know that time. We have no ability to understand when God will do that. That is his prerogative. That is his choice. And what he is saying here, he says, there is an ordained time, a set time. He limits a certain day. He's ordained a certain day. Saying in David, today after so long a time, as it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. <coughs> what he's saying is, if you continue to harden your hearts, there's a time coming that God will say, okay, enough is enough. You're through. You will not have a chance from this point on to ever get saved. We have no ability to know when that day is for anybody. That person doesn't have an understanding. Look at the phrase here. Second, the limit here is that God's patience is not endless. <coughs> Continued rejection will result in God essentially saying, okay, have it your way. Salvation is not something sh that should be put off. When an individual understands the gospel, the need is to respond immediately. There are at least two reasons for this. Number one, we don't have any guarantee of tomorrow. We could all die tonight, any one of us. Secondly, and this is what this verse is dealing with, God's spirit could be removed from his pre-salvation work in an individual's life. If you keep on saying no, God will say, fine, have it your way. The opportunity is there. And that's why twice, back in chapter 3, now in chapter 4, harden not your hearts, don't do it. And the writer of Hebrews is, is imploring, is just, his heart is breaking that these people are so close to the truth, but in danger of going back. Don't do it. Because if you continue down that path, there is a day, I don't know when that day is, that God's going to say, that's it. That's why in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, it says, For he saith, I have beheard, heard thee at a time accepted, in the day of salvation have I drawn thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You don't put it off. James 4, 13 and 14. Go to now, ye that say, to do, today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time, then vanishes away. You don't know what tomorrow brings. You may have plans to go out for dinner tomorrow night, go see a movie. 
I don't know what you have plans for. You may have plans to sleep in. Well, you may be dead before the alarm clock goes off. Or if you're sleeping in, I guess you don't have the alarm clock goes off. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Don't put it off. Why? Genesis 6, 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. My spirit won't always, this is with the flood, my spirit will not always strive with man. T turn back, I didn't want to put all these verses, turn back to the 106th Psalm. And, and it'd be worthwhile later reading the entire Psalm. The Jewish people, Israel, had gone through the wilderness. God had miraculously showed his power and his provision uh, and the deliverance that he had given them. It talks about that in the first nine verses. Then in verse 10, it says this. He saved them from the hand of him that hated them, from the pharaohs, redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters cover their enemies. There's not one of them left. What, a, what amazing deliverance that God did for the Jewish people back then. Then believed they his words and sang his praise. Well, if I'd been delivered from an army chasing me, and you had no weapons, and God destroyed them all, and it was certainly unquestionably a, a supernatural miracle, because you had just gone through that parted waters and nothing happened to you and your million-plus brethren. But when the Egyptian army followed, that water caved in on them and they all drowned. Not one was left. Did they understand that God did this? Yes. Look what it says. Then believed they his words and sang his praise. Wow, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But they soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. But lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. We want to go back to Egypt. We had leeks and garlic. We had all that good eating food. And all we're getting here is this manna from heaven. Every day we get manna and manna. And okay, God gave them some quail. Too much, <laughs> you know. You know, if you would eat, what's your favorite food? Doesn't matter. Pizza, steak, hamburgers, ice cream. If you would have that every day, every day, day after day after day after day, pretty soon it wouldn't be your favorite food. You get sick of it. We want to go back to Egypt. We had leeks and garlics and all this good stuff. They murmured and they complained. Even though they had believed God, they saw his works, not salvationally believing individually, but they knew God had delivered them. So what did God do? Verse 15. He gave them their request. But quail, other food. But sent leanness into their soul. Leanness is the inability to respond to God spiritually. They kept on complaining. They'd seen the works of God. They understood. But they rejected it and complained and complained and complained. And finally God said, okay, have it your way. But set leanness into their soul. 
they, they, they look, look at verse 21. They forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. They forgot. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land, Israel. They want to go back to Egypt. They believed not his word, but murmured in their tents and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. So God gave them over. God gave them their request. God gave them exactly what they wanted, but sent leanness into their soul. That's one of, to me, that's one of the most sobering verses in the Bible. God's spirit will not always strive with men. See, that's, that's what it's talking about here in um, Hebrews chapter. Don't harden your heart. Because there's a day ordained. There's a day set in the future. Only God knows it. He hasn't revealed that to us. But God has determined that if you keep on your course, that he will ultimately say, that's it. It's over. He'll send leanness to your soul. The spirit will no longer strive with thee, and you will be unable to respond to God. You'll have a seared heart, a seared conscience. Wow, what a dangerous, dangerous place to be. That's what he's saying here. And there is that day. So he's warning them. That's what Limit is talking about. There is a day out there. Only God knows when it would be. We can never know, nor can anybody else. So don't harden your hearts. Then verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, they would not, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Jesus is Joshua. Rest did not come through Israel going into the promised land. God speaks of a future day when the rest would be provided. And Jesus here should be Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest. See, what, what he's ultimately talking about is not just going into the land and being protected from your enemies. Because David, who came years after Joshua, said the same thing. Don't harden your heart. There's a rest you need to enter into. So ultimately, it's not the rest in the land. It's the rest with God. Then he says, verse 9, there remains therefore a rest to the people of God. Now the people of God here are the Jewish people. That's the context. It refers to the Jewish people as chosen people. See, being Jewish doesn't get you into heaven. It's not your ethnicity. It's being born again. So there, there remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God, to these Jewish people who have only made profession of faith. Now, the application of this is to anybody and everybody. If you keep on saying no to God, there could be a day coming where God will say, okay, have it your way. You'll have no interest in spiritual things. You'll have no desire to talk about it. You'll have no desire at all to go to a church service to hear the word of God preach. You will just be hard-hearted because you have come to that point. God said, okay. So you cannot come to the Lord unless the spirit of God draws you and works with you. Now he wants to. Don't harden your heart. But ultimately, if you say no, 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 you know what God's going to say? 
Okay, okay. Have it your way. That's what he's saying here. There remains therefore a rest. The context of the passage is a warning to Jewish people to come to true saving faith. <clears throat> they will be told that, told that the opportunity is still open. Remember back at um, uh, Hebrews 4.1 when we, we started uh, last week. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left, off, left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. There's that promise. Don't come short of it. So there remains a rest. It's a spiritual rest. What Jesus had said in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, uh, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. Jesus said, didn't say go to church, you'll find rest. Don't go to the baptismal pool and you'll find rest. You know, Jesus said what? Come unto me. See, the only place we'll find rest is in him. And there are people here that need that rest. On the back of this page, <coughs> verse 10. For he that has entered into his rest, God's rest, Jesus' rest, he has also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Reminding him back that creation. If, if you're going to come into God's rest, you've got to cease working. Salvation is only by grace through faith. Not of yourselves. And if you're going to enter into God's rest, the one that he offers, you've got to start, stop trying to do it on your own. Not religious works, not being a good person, it's, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got to come only through faith. Then he says this in verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, understand labor here. If he just said, you can't work for it, right? He just said, you've got to stop working. You've got to cease from your own works. Labor here doesn't mean work. Labor... The Greek word literally means to hasten, to exert oneself, to give diligence. It doesn't mean working to get saved. It, it, what it means is you need to be diligent in finding out how you enter into God's rest and then make sure you do it. Make sure it gets done. In other words, an unsaved person is exhorted to make sure he gets saved. You know, don't let anything stop you from coming to the Lord. Don't let your spouse stop you. Don't let your family stop you. Don't let your religious leader, your rabbi, your priest, stop you. Don't let your circle of friends stop you. Do whatever you must do to make sure you put your trust in Jesus. Now, it's not that difficult. But he's saying you've got to make sure. Um, here's, here's, the, here's the command of, of Jesus in Matthew 7. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads um, unto life. And few there be that find it. The gate is narrow. Many come to the gate, but few go in. Because people think that they can do something to help God out. 
I can do this. I can do that. I'm a good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. You just lied. You didn't keep them all. But anyway, make sure you come through the straight gate. What's the straight gate? Jesus, by faith. If somebody has given the illustration, um, you know, the turnstiles, I remember the subway station in New York. I, I grew up in, outside of New York City, and many, many times I remember riding the subways. And uh, I don't do it now, especially after dark. But anyway, you know, you would, go, you would stop at the window and you'd buy the token. And, and you go through that turnstile, you know, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, and it was so narrow. There ain't no way two of you getting through that gate together. If you had baggage with you, you'd have to throw it over the top and pick it up on the other side or leave it behind, basically, because you had to come through alone. That's the straight gate. You have to leave all the baggage behind and come to God alone in faith. In Luke, it says this, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Why won't they be able to enter in? Because they're bringing all their baggage. They're bringing their religion. They're bringing their good works. They're bringing their false understanding. You've got to come alone. You've got to come God's way. Jesus is the way. And so labor there. When he says labor, you're not working. You're making sure you're being diligent to make sure you come God's way. And then he says this in verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. The word of God is, a, is, is foundational to show somebody their need for the Lord. The spirit of God uses the word of God in the life of individuals. Notice what it says. Well, first look at Psalm 130. We can never minimize the importance of the word of God. Psalm 138, 2. Uh, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness, for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. There's lots of names for God in the Bible. Jesus is one of them. Jehovah. Um... El Shaddai, uh, hundreds of names. But God has magnified his word above all his name. Why? How many Jesuses are in the world? Well, you've got the Mormon Jesus, you've got the Muslim Jesus, you've got the Jehovah Witness Jesus, you've got the liberal church Jesus, you've got all these different Jesuses. So just the name of Jesus doesn't mean anything if it's the Mormon Jesus, because that's not the biblical Jesus. Or the JW Jesus, that's not the biblical Jesus. So how do we know who the biblical Jesus is? He's elevated his word above every name of his. Now, is that the name of Jesus we're saved, but it's the biblical Jesus. The person of Jesus we find in the Bible. We cannot minimize the word of God in somebody coming to the Lord and what, what are we told about the Word of God? It's living. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. 
1 Peter 1.23. John 6.63, it is the spirit that quicks, quickens. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. The word of God is quick, literally meaning it's alive. These are just not words on paper. This is the word of God. It is God's word. It is living. It is powerful, or another word is, is active. That's literally what that word powerful means. It is active. When God's word goes out, it will do its work. It's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the most potent weapon available in the spiritual realm. Piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit. Piercing. The word of God alone is able to speak to the spirit. The soul would be our emotions. See, the difference between us and the animal world, animals have a soul. Animals can feel. If you had a dog, can you, can you make that dog, does that dog at times perhaps get sad because you've yelled at him or whatever you did to him? Yeah. Can he show happiness and joy? Yeah. We can get sad. We can show happiness. We have a soul. We also have a spirit. Animals don't have a spirit. Spirit is what enables us to communicate with God. And God, the word of God, can divide the soul and the spirit, getting down to the core of our being, our spiritual being. <clears throat> it is a two-edged sword dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit. First Thessalonians 5.23, the very God of peace, sanctify you holy. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the soul. The soul would also be, I, I think, perhaps you know, our, our thought process, our mind. You, you can't touch it, but it's there. Soul is the mind and the emotions. The marrow is where life resides, not the joints. Dividing the joints, it says, and the marrow. God's word can just penetrate to the very core of our being, to our spirit, to our life. It's living and, and, and bring conviction that it's true. And then, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God can bring a person into confrontation with their innermost thoughts and intents, and they are brought under conviction by the Holy Spirit using the word of God. It's a discerner, the word of God is, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is powerful. We have to use the word of God. When we witness, testimony is fine, sometimes needed, but you must or should weave the word of God into your testimony. You know, I, 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 you know, I was law, you know, I, I didn't know anything about religion, and I came across this book, and it, and it said, for the wages of sin is death. I said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and I was confronted that the Bible, I'm, I'm a sinner. You don't even have to say it's the Bible. It's alive. It's quick. It'll do its work. You know, so you need the work in, in, in that. And so what he's saying, the word of God is going to bring, bring conviction and understanding on the hearts and the minds of these people who are only professors. But they have a responsibility, harden not your hearts. Which means they could what? Harden your heart. They have a choice. Harden your heart or don't harden your heart. 
But understand, if you harden your heart, and the Word of God will do its work, if you harden your heart, there may be a day coming that God's going to say, okay, that's it. And no longer will the Spirit of God strive with thee. And you wouldn't even want to be saved at that point because you can't be saved unless the Spirit of God is working with you. <clears throat> then verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows each of us. God knows our every thought. There is nothing, nothing that is kept from him. All things are naked, revealed, and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, this is a warning passage. And, and as I said, the warning gets stronger and stronger and stronger as we go through Hebrews. This is the second of five. You're going to have to answer to the God of the universe. He knows everything about you. Nothing is hidden. You're an open book to him. First Chronicles 28, 9 says, For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. God knows everything. He knows your heart. He knows your imagination. He knows your thoughts. And if you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, oh my, you'll be cast off forever. 1 Kings 8, 39 then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. God knows our hearts. By the way, you know what he says about our heart? Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Don't follow your heart. Your heart's going to lead you astray. Follow the word of God. And this one that we are going to have to answer to in Revelation 20, when all the unsaved stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, I saw a great white throne. Him that sat on it, from whom face the earth and the heaven fled away, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. See, their name is not in the book of life. And so everything that you have thought you have done, God has written in books, and he's got it down, and, and lost people will be judged according to what they've done. Different degrees of punishment in hell. So we stand unsaved, stand naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Every one of us stands before God. So this is the, the culmination of the warning passage. Don't harden your heart. If you continue to harden your heart, there's a day out there. Only God knows the day. Horizo. On the horizon, there's a time that God will say, if you continue to harden your heart, okay, have it your way. You will not have any interest in spirit. You can't. 
because the Spirit of God will not strive with you anymore. Don't harden your heart. He's speaking to the professing Jewish believers who are in danger of leaving the truth. The application is obvious, should be. The challenge is the same to us. If you've never come to the Lord, today is the day of your salvation. Don't put it off. Why? You don't know if you're going to see the morning. And you don't know if you keep on putting it off and you've heard it year after year after year after year and you kept on saying, I, I don't want it, I don't want it, whatever the reason being, that God one day might say, okay, have it your way. And he'll no longer strive with thee. The warning passages are sober and should be reflective for all of us to make sure we come to the knowledge of the Lord. Any thoughts, any questions before? Yes. Okay. When you say, that, you, mean, you mean verse um, 7. Again, he limited a certain day, saying in David, he's quoting from the Psalms, is what he's, he's quoting from. <clears throat> that's, all, that's all it's meaning, saying in David, uh, in David's time, in, in David's life. See, all through the scripture, there's warnings, and, and primarily to Israel, because God's working with Israel. In, in the wilderness wanderers, don't harden your heart. In the time of David, don't harden your heart, uh, that type of thing. Um, you know, when Psalm 106 was written, that was written after the wilderness wanderings, that was used as an example, don't harden your heart. Um, that's what's happening in Hebrews. Don't harden your heart, like your fathers did in the wilderness. In other words, even in David's day, some did. It's the want of man to think they can do it better than God. And they keep on hardening their heart. And, and that's just, you know, and that's what he's saying. And that's been true since the fall. We think we can, you know, Cain and Abel. Yeah, Abel did it God's way, Cain did it his way. And he hardened his heart. You know, and you can go through the Bible, uh, and you've got uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and you've got J Jacob and uh, Esau, and, and all the way through. And it's true right down to this day. There are people in good churches that, are, that sit there on Sundays and hear the preaching, and hear the gospel over and over and over again, and, and they're saying, eh, it's not for me. I don't believe it. And, and they may be under conviction. I'll close with one story. Years ago, when we were in San Diego, I don't remember how I, do you remember his name? He, he was, I met with him for two years, a Jewish man. Very, very successful man. He was one of the top men in, remember Levitt's? furniture. He was one of the top execs. He had use of their uh, plane and flew all over the country and such. Very, very successful man. And um, <clears throat> two years, once a week, a couple hours a time, went into his business. We had a Bible study. And I tried everything I could in every way to show him from the Word of God his need for the Lord. He was, well, I then said, okay, we're going to Hebrews. And I'm going to give him some of the warning passages. <clears throat> I don't remember which warning passage. <clears throat> but, I, but I covered one of the warning passages with him. And a few days later, we had a Passover Christ and the Passover Seder. And he and his wife came. 
And his wife was a Gentile, may have been a believer, I don't know. I think she professed, I, anyway. And she came up to me at the dinner, because the dinner is in between the, you know, the two, you know. And I can't remember his name. Um, I met with him for two years, but it's been 15, 20 years now. Um, he said, what did you say to my husband this week? He said, what do you mean? He said, after you met for you, and he said, she said, never had, he said, after the Bible study, he, he had to leave work. He came home, and, and he couldn't sit. He was so agitated, and he was pacing around. He said, and, and, he, and he, was, he, he was unbelievably disturbed about what you said to him. Well, I had given him one of the warning passages. I don't even remember which one it was. And, and, he, and he said, I got to talk to my rabbi. This just can't be so. I, I, and I, he, it was so obvious. This guy was under Holy Spirit conviction. God had, and he had no rest for himself. He was so agitated, he had to leave work. This is his business. He left all his employees there. I don't know, you know. And, and the last I heard of, uh, of him, he went into the Baha'i faith. Baha'i. A cult that has nothing to do with Jesus. I mean, in the Baha'i faith, Jesus is nothing. I mean, you know. There's an ordained day. Rob. Rob Sumner. I hope you're listening, Rob. I hope you repent. Rob Sumner was his name. I think that was his name, Rob. I just, I, I, I wondered, did he come to the point in his life? I mean, we spent hours and hours, and I exhausted my knowledge of the web. That's not much to begin with, but everything I had, I gave him. I gave him both barrels, and I had run out of everything. That's why we went to Hebrews. And I wonder if he ended up with this warning. There's that day coming. And he completely left anything biblical and started the Baha'i faith. I don't know if that is the case. But this guy was agitated. His wife said, because he was under Holy Spirit conviction and just said, no, 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 no. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> what, a, what a frightful... Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.